That was really cool. Um, it's a joy to be before you today. My name is Jesse. I'm a member here at Stephen Street. Um, it's also amazing what our church does for our pastor. Um, I don't know the exact number, but I do know that uh, I believe it's within the top five professions that experience the most burnout. Um, and what I mean by that is that they leave the profession and never return. And so this is just a good rhythm that we have allowed uh, for our pastor. Uh, you know, Americans, we're, we're go, 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 go. We, we are always on the move. And um, you, you look at the history of God's people, and they've always had this rhythm of rest, right? Uh, every week, there's the Sabbath. Every seven years, they would rest the land. And so this is a good thing that our church does for our pastor. And so just be praying for him this, uh, during these, these six weeks. So I just got back from South Asia, and uh, uh, Andy was my roomie the whole time. And I don't know if you noticed something about him, but he's got some scruff. And uh, I think I rubbed off on him. So I wish Deanna was here. I'd tell her she needs to let you keep it, because the beard is the way, if you were wondering. Um, but we, Deanna, you hear that? Let him keep the beard, please. Uh, no, we, it was an amazing trip, and I had the, just the privilege of, of getting to share the gospel multiple times, two of which were on the plane. So one was, was on the plane um, going there, and one was on the plane coming home. And uh, coming home, I was seated next to this man who was an older gentleman, and uh, like you could tell he was really into just the politics of his nation, and in his nation, Hinduism is in, so ingrained in the culture, um, so, so they're passionate about their religion because their religion is also their politics, uh, a lot of it is. And so we, uh, we were sitting next to other. He was sleeping at first, and um, I'm, I'm in seminary right now. I have a class, World Religions, and so I was just reading my textbook, and I, I got done with it, and I just set it down, and he was awake, and he asked me what it was. So I handed it to him, and I just took that as my open door to, to have a gospel conversation with him. And so we started talking. And he uh, was very vocal, very loud, uh, did not like the questions I asked him and the things I told him. Um, but he was, he was kind of, you could just tell he, he'd never been pressed for why he believes what he believes. He hasn't fully thought it through as most people uh, do. And, and so when I started pressing him, he started to get aggravated with me. And so when I was trying to pull out, like, why, why are you Hindu? Uh, like, why do you believe that this is true? So he started to talk about all of these people who have observed Hinduism, you know, they've, they've uh, you know, meditated and done all of these amazing things. And, and one guy lived to be 130, and one guy did this, and one guy did this, all from meditating and, and uh, exercising their faith in Hinduism. And I, I listened, because he, he liked to talk a lot, so I had to do a lot of listening. And finally had a, a moment, and I asked him, so, so those people, like, that's awesome, it's amazing, uh, but are those people still alive, or are they dead? And he thought that was a crazy question. And he's like, they're, they're dead. I mean, obviously. I said, well, that, that's the primary difference between your religion and mine. Jesus is alive. He is alive. And that's why I'm a Christian, because I believe that. So we're doing a series over these next three weeks. Scott's given me the privilege of, of filling his pulpit over this time. Um, and it's called Risen unshakable faith in the resurrection. We're going to spend three weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a very large chapter in the Bible, but it's the most exhaustive, just 
theology of the resurrection that we have in all of Scripture. Um, Paul goes deep into the resurrection and its implications. And so this week um, and the following weeks are going to be very apologetic based, meaning a defense of the faith. So they're going to be pretty intellectual, um, which we might not typically be used to in sermons. It's, it's not a like school lesson, but, but it's, it will be a little like we're going to do some thinking over these next few weeks. And today we're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus. Did it actually happen? Next week, we're going to look at our resurrection. What happens after we die? Do we just dissolve into the dirt as one person believes that, that I had a conversation with? Or, or is there something that happens after we die? And then last, the last week, the third week, we'll look at our resurrection bodies. And Paul kind of uses this uh, to really argue against the problem of evil. And it's a great just argument, a great tool to combat that. And so uh, we're going to do a lot of thinking this week. It's going to be fun. So I'd love to read uh, our first portion of Scripture, if you don't mind standing, in honor of God's Word. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I don't know if they have it up there. Um, you got a Bible in your pew in front of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 1. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, He also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul for writing this down, for giving us such a rich theology of the resurrection. Lord, thank you for this introduction to what he's going to teach us over these next few weeks. Lord, I pray for your church, these people standing in front of me right now, that they would be encouraged. Um, primarily that they would grow in their courage, God, uh, and their, their faith in the resurrection, that, that they would be willing to, to take risks in conversations with people. They would be willing to look a fool for the sake of Christ that they would be bold and that through this text and through this teaching today that they would leave here more confident in the resurrection and that that confidence would lead them to zeal for your mission. So God be with us today. Be glorified, Jesus. Amen. Y'all can be seated. <clears throat> the most important question you could ever ask is did Jesus rise from the dead? Why is this the most important question? Because the answer changes everything. This is the central event of history. Our calendar is based off of it, and all of Christianity hinges on this doctrine, did Jesus rise? Listen to the seriousness that Paul places into this. We'll be in this text next week, but I wanted to highlight a couple of verses. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 and 17. He said, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, 
and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So if the resurrection is false, I would not be a Christian. You should not be a Christian. And if somebody could disprove the resurrection, they could show us the bones of Jesus, then we should just go on our way and forget all of this church stuff. Like Paul gives us that warrant here. But that's not the case. And that's what we're going to look at today. So we need answers. We need to answer the question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? We need clarity, and Paul offers us just that. Verse 1, he says, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you. What is it that Paul's wanting to make clear? The gospel. The good news that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the, get, the dead. This is very simple. It's not complicated. Paul wants to make it clear. Okay, it's a simple story, and Paul shares it with us. But how does the gospel come to us? How did the gospel come to us? He said that he preached it. You see, the gospel must be preached. God designed the gospel as a message, as a story that is communicated through words, that is heard through the ears, and then the heart is changed. The gospel is a message. It's a declaration of reality, and it must be shared with words in order to be believed. Romans 10, 14, Paul said, How then can they call on, them, on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? Paul's not talking about someone that stands behind a pulpit. He's talking about believers opening their mouths and sharing the gospel. The gospel came to you so that it could go to someone else. Thank God Paul preached the gospel. Thank God he, he put his life on the line and shared with the Gentiles and opened his mouth in boldness because we're standing here today worshiping Jesus because of his courage. Praise God for that. Now he says something that's a little interesting here. He says that this gospel is by which you were being saved. And he's speaking to Christians here. So how is this gospel saving us? Like I thought we were saved. No, the early church at, and, and the writers of scripture talk about salvation in a different way than we tend to. They, they have a more holistic understanding. What Paul's talking about here is sanctification. This is a part of salvation as well. It's becoming more like Christ. You know, they didn't talk about salvation as a one-time event. It's not like this just get out of hell free card. No, salvation is this progressive reality through our lives. Paul calls us to work out this salvation. Okay, it's more than just justification. When you have faith in Jesus, you're declared right and you become a Christian. Salvation is more than that. It's also your growth in Christ. And then on that final day when Jesus comes back, we're made perfect. That's salvation. We're not ultimately saved yet. We're going to be saved. We're in this process of salvation. Okay, so how does this happen then? How does it happen? He says that to hold to the message. He says, by which you're being saved, if you hold to the message I preach to you. Okay, by holding on to the gospel. That's how we attain this, by knowing the truth. Okay, what you believe determines who you become. Truth matters. But you can hold on loosely to truth, which would lead to your destruction. Paul says, unless you believed in vain. To believe in vain is to believe without careful thought, without examining deeply the text, without applying scripture to your life. To believe in vain 
is to believe without careful thought. So this is why we study. This is why we seek to know our Bibles. This is why we care about theology. This is why we learn apologetics and we think deeply about Christian ethics. Because to believe in vain is very dangerous business. Christians need to be thoughtful. We've given this up to the world. When you look at the history of the academy, of these knowledge institutions, Christianity used to be at the center of it. Even when you look at the architecture of some of these early colleges, the school of theology was in the center. And all of the other things were around it because they knew that everything stems from an understanding of who God is and the truth. But now we've given the academy up to the secularists and and we're not thinking deeply anymore. That's likely why America is how it is. Christians need to be thoughtful. We need to think. Jesus said, love him with your mind. And so that's our aim these next few weeks is to love Jesus with our mind. So let's dive in. Let's deeply think about the resurrection and its implications for our life over these next few weeks. And I'm going to make a bold claim. I believe it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. So I have a a book I put up here. This is one of my favorite apologetics books. A lot of my research for this sermon came from that. And I just wanted to share a resource with you if you're into this stuff and you want to dive deeper into apologetics. This is a great argument. So go add it to your Amazon cart and and check it out. Um, But it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. And hopefully when you walk away from this, you'll agree with me. So to answer this question then, did Jesus rise from the dead? We need to determine some facts concerning this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Luckily, many scholars have done the legwork for us. Okay, here's a list of 12 things that both liberal and conservative scholars agree. Both those who deny that Jesus is God and that he rose from the dead and those who believe it. There's a common consensus in the scholarly field about these 12 historical facts. One, Jesus died a Roman crucifixion. Two, he was buried, most likely in a private tomb. Three, soon afterwards, the disciples were discouraged, bereaved, and despondent, having lost hope. Four, Jesus' tomb was found empty very soon after his interment. Five, the disciples had experiences that they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. Six, due to these experiences, the disciples' lives were thoroughly transformed. They were even willing to die for their belief. Seven, the proclamation of the resurrection took place very early from the beginning of church history. Eight, the disciples' public testimony and preaching of the resurrection took place in the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus had been crucified and buried shortly thereafter. Nine, the gospel message centered on the preaching of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Ten, Sunday was the primary day for gathering and worshiping. Eleven, James, the brother of Jesus and a skeptic before this time, was converted when he believed he also saw the risen Jesus. And twelve, just a few years later, Saul of Tarsus, who had become Paul, became a Christian believer, left Judaism, left persecuting the church due to an experience that he also believed was an appearance of the risen Jesus. All of these things are verifiable historical facts that you could discover in the same way that we learn about the history of George Washington or William Shakespeare. Okay, these, like, if if you don't believe in God, you still should believe in these. Like, we can agree on these things or, or you just simply be denying history. But despite all of these confirmed events, the skeptic still has a few outs, okay? Perhaps the New Testament writers were just deceived and, and perhaps they... They were just wrong about what they saw. Or maybe they really believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, and that's why they paid with their lives, but they were mistaken or fooled. Kind of how um, we, we view radical um, Islam, who willing to die for their faith, right? 
Or perhaps their natural explanations for all the miracles they thought they saw, had a conversation with the atheist, and this is his argument as I'm pressing him on the resurrection. He's like, I don't know, but there's got to be natural explanations. So there's a few outs, okay, that need to be dealt with, dealt with. But the minimal consensus of all scholars, Christian or not, is that the disciples believed that Jesus rose from the dead, and this must be dealt with. Okay, I believe the burden of proof is not on us to defend the resurrection of Jesus, but on believers to disprove the resurrection. To reject the most historically recorded event in the history of mankind is to, as Gandalf said to Saruman in Lord of the Rings, to abandon reason for madness, right? Man, we, there's so much evidence for this. We need to put the burden of proof on the skeptic to say, what do you do with this? How do you interpret this evidence? And I'm going to believe it. For the eyewitnesses and contemporaries of the events to be wrong, there must be some other explanations then for this resurrection and these miracles throughout the New Testament. They have to explain away two things, the skeptic does. They have to explain away two things when you're in your conversation. Why was the tomb empty? And why were there people claiming to have seen Jesus? The empty tomb and the appearances he made to living people. Why did these exist? Okay, the tomb was actually empty. How did that happen? Over 500 witnesses claimed to see them. How was that possible? Okay, so let's t take a look at some common objections, both now and throughout history, that skeptics have used to explain away the resurrection. Not all of these objections are being used today, but it's important to study historical rejections of Christ because we all know that history loves to repeat itself. All the heresies of former arrive in new neat packages every so often, and so will these things. So we need to be prepared. And the rest of the sermon, we'll compare a fictional claim with a factual claim, okay? First one, fiction. Jesus didn't die on the cross. The fact, he did. He actually died. Verse three says, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. A couple theories. First one, swoon theory. Okay, perhaps Jesus didn't really die on the cross, but merely swooned. In other words, he was still alive when he was placed in the tomb, but he somehow escaped and convinced his disciples that he'd risen from the dead. There are numerous fatal flaws to this theory. Uh, one, enemies and friends alike thought Jesus was dead. The Romans were professional executioners. They were coming up with new ways to execute people over their bowl of cereal in the morning. Like there's so many ways the Romans came up with to torture and kill people. Jesus, when he was in the garden, he was sweating blood. The, there was so much stress on him that, that the capillaries in his face were, were bursting and he was sweating blood. And these, these soldiers come in, they um, arrest Jesus and they take him away and they start to beat him. Okay, they start to beat him and then they take him out to um, a courtyard, likely with a post and, a, and they, would, they would chain him to it so he couldn't get away. And they would take the, this whip um, that had a, had a rod in it with, with a bunch of leather coming off of it. And the leather had these bits of rock and, and bone and other just fragments of hard material weaved throughout it. And what they would do is they, they would then whip the person and all of those things would, would just go into their skin and the tissue and the muscle and they would yank it out and flesh would be ripped off. Sometimes it would get so stuck that they would have to pull multiple times to get it off. They did that to Jesus 39 times. Um, it was said that they, there was a law, they couldn't do it more than 39 because the prisoner would then die because they would just be so, so beaten. And so they did it to Jesus 39 times. Then they took him, got a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and they beat the crown of thorns into his skull. 
So Jesus' blood, he tore up. Um, his heart's probably beating so fast to try to get blood to his body. He's, he's probably on the brink of just cardiac arrest. Um, he's dying, and he's likely passing out. Um, he, they, they make him carry his cross up to Golgotha. He can't do it. He just physically is so exhausted from this beating, he can't do it. So they have to get someone else to help him. So they take him up to the cross. They, they lay that cross down. They lay Jesus' body on it all beaten up, scratched up. And they take the nail and, and they, they drive it into his wrist right here. They did do it to his hand because there's nothing to hold on to. It would just rip through. So there's two bones with the medial nerve. I think it's what it's called that attached to your funny bone. Same, same nerve as your funny bone. And they drilled those, those nails right into there, crushing that nerve. Um, that's what would hold them up. And so they did that to both sides and they put the feet on top and they throw the nail through and then they pick up that cross and it'd fall into that hole. So it would be st- standing up kind of like you do your mail post. And they would be hung there, dangling. And how these, these people would typically die is through asphyxiation. They, they couldn't breathe. They would have to pull themselves up to get a breath. So as you can imagine, pulling on those nails and taking that breath in and then sinking down low. And that's what Jesus was doing on that cross. Um, then they typically, if they needed to hurry, they would, as we saw in the text, they would break the knees of the people so that they would not be able to breathe anymore because they couldn't pull themselves up. But Jesus they claimed he was dead, and so they didn't break his knees. And they stabbed him in the side, and water and blood flowed out of his body. They took him off that cross, um, and they embalmed him in 75 pounds of bandages and spices and laid him in a tomb. I mean, first of all, like, how in the world could someone survive that? Second, it's highly unlikely that these women that knew him would not have recognized that he was alive as they're embalming him. And then how would a badly injured and bleeding man still be alive 36 hours later? And he would have bled to death. How would he have taken off all of these bandages and and rolled away this two-ton rock and gotten past these guards who would have been killed for allowing a breach of security? How would this bloody and barely alive Jesus convince these scattered, skeptical, scared cowards that he had triumphed over death, that they would be willing to go and die for it? And they would not have worshipped him. They would have helped him, right? Several non-Christian writers affirm that Jesus died by crucifixion. Josephus, Tacitus, Thallus, the Jewish Talmud, all non-Christian sources all affirm the death of Jesus on a cross. Jesus actually died. Another theory is the substitute theory. This takes on many shapes and forms that perhaps a substitute took Jesus' place on the cross. This is a similar explanation to what's offered in the Quran. The Quran states they killed him not nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them. And those who differed therein are full of doubts with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow. For of a surety they killed him not. Nigh Allah raised him up unto himself, and Allah is exalted in power. Wise. So the Quran saying that, that Jesus was, was raised to heaven without being put on the cross, and that there was a resemblance of Christ on the cross to appear like Jesus was crucified instead of the actual Jesus. And he, he ascended to heaven and he was there with Allah. There's several problems with this theory. There's, there's no evidence to back this up. The Muslim assertion from the Quran comes more than 600 years after the lifetime of Jesus. So how can it be considered more authentic than the eyewitnesses in the non-Christian early sources? It can't. How did the followers of Jesus and his mother not recognize that it was him on the cross? How were the Romans mistaken about who they killed? 
And if it wasn't Jesus that was killed, then why was the tomb of the man who was really killed found empty? And the tomb was still empty. Are we to believe that that substitute rose from the dead? If so, then we should worship him instead of Jesus. But that's not the case. Jesus actually died. And as we see in this text and in the one following, it says that he died according to the scriptures and he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And Christ was crucified according to the Old Testament. The skeptic must deal with the Old Testament as it relates to the cross. I mean, read Isaiah 53 and tell me that's not talking about Jesus. Additionally, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. Words about him that predate his coming into the world. And here's just a few. That he would be the seed of a woman. That he would be the seed of Abraham. That this Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah and a son of David. That he would be called God. That he would be born in Bethlehem. That he would visit the temple before it was destroyed. That he would die in 33 AD. And that he would rise from the dead. Who in all of history of the world could fit these characteristics other than Jesus of Nazareth? The prophecies must be dealt with. Next, fiction. Jesus did not rise from the dead. Maybe he died, but he stayed dead. He did not rise from the dead. Well, the fact is that Jesus did rise from the dead. He is alive. Verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. One theory posed throughout history is the wrong tomb theory, that maybe the disciples just went to the wrong tomb and then assume that Jesus had risen. You typically see them talk about this with the women. Women's testimonies weren't valued in court. And so they're like, these women, they went to the wrong tomb, and they came back, and they started this hysteria, and then the word spread, and man, all of this happened. But there's, this theory has two fatal flaws. If the disciples had gone to the wrong tomb, then the Jewish Roman authorities could have just went to the right one and just got Jesus' body and paraded it around the city and said, hey, here's Jesus. But that's not the case. The tomb was known by the Jews because it was their tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And the tomb was known by the Romans because they placed guards there. As William Lane Craig points out, the wrong tomb theory assumes that all of the Jews and Romans had a permanent kind of just collective amnesia about what had happened to the body of Jesus. And that's just ridiculous, right? Even if the disciples did go to the wrong tomb, the theory does not explain how the risen Jesus appeared. They said they saw him. Not just an empty tomb, but they saw Jesus. The empty tomb did not convince the disciples. It was the appearance of Jesus that turned them from these scared, scattered, skeptical cowards into the greatest peaceful missionary force in history. They witnessed him alive. This is especially true of Paul and James, right? James was the brother of Jesus. How crazy must you be to believe that your brother is God? Like, how many of you have siblings in here? Your siblings are crazy, right? Like, it would take a lot of faith to believe that your brother is God, but that happened to James. Why? Because he saw Jesus. He didn't believe in him until he saw him. Same with Paul, a man who was out persecuting the church, killing Christians, turned to Christ. Why? Because he saw him. He saw him because he rose from the dead. Next is the stolen body theory. This is the first theory that was put into the world to try to convince people that Jesus wasn't alive. That maybe perhaps the disciples stole Jesus' body and hid it and just started this rumor, right? It turns the disciples from being deceived to, to being the deceivers, makes them out to be liars. Matthew 28, 11 through 15, this is the theory that was shared then. This is the lie of the chief priests and, and those. They're saying, tell, tell the people that, that the disciples just stole the body and just spread this 
rumor. But I mean, they had no motive, right? They had no motive to steal the body of Jesus. I mean, what? Did they steal the body in order to get themselves beaten, tortured, and martyred? I mean, seriously. Chuck Colson, former aide to President Nixon and founder of Prison Fellowship, went to prison over the Watergate scandal. Comparing his experience to that of the apostles, he writes, Watergate involved a conspiracy to cover up perpetrated by the closest aides of the President of the United States, the most powerful men in America, who were intensely loyal to their president. But one of them, John Dean, turned to state's evidence that has testified against Nixon, as he put it, to save his own skin. And he did so only two weeks after informing the president about what was really going on. Two weeks. The real cover-up, the lie, could only be held together for two weeks, and then everybody else jumped ship in order to save themselves. Now, the fact is that all that those around the president were facing was embarrassment and maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. But what about the disciples? Twelve powerless men, peasants really, were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breath that they had seen Jesus. Don't you think that one of those apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities, yet not one did. James was thrown off a building and then stoned. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. All for a lie? Highly doubt it. And even if they did try and steal the body, how would the disciples have gotten past the guards who were guarding the tomb for their lives? The fact that the Jews were even spreading this theory is proof that the tomb was actually empty. Why would the Jews concoct an explanation for the empty tomb if Jesus' body was still in there? Next, fiction, the last one. He did not appear to people. Fact, people actually saw him. Verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep, meaning they've died. Then he appeared to James, his brother, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. John Dominic Crossan from the Jesus Seminar, I don't know if many of you remember when that happened, he brought up this theory in a debate with William Lane Craig. So this is a, a pretty recent theory. Um, Crossan offered the theory that the disciples made up the resurrection story because they went and they searched the scriptures um, after his death, and they found that this persecution and, and execution was almost like a job description of being God's elect. So they were these radical Jews who just interpreted the scripture in this way, and so they went and they spread this to hopefully have more favor with God. Okay, the entire two-hour debate turned on William Langs Craig's response, and he said, right. And that came after they experienced the resurrection appearances. The faith of the disciples did not lead to the resurrection appearance, but it was the appearance of Jesus that led to their faith. They then searched the scriptures. The disciples missed it. If you remember reading the story, they completely missed it. It wasn't until Christ was walking with them on the road and was showing them how he was the fulfillment of the scriptures that they started to understand. It wasn't until after the resurrection and appearance of Christ that they started to make those connections. Man, Crossan and many others who, who believe this theory still today cannot account for the appearances of over 500 people. They can't account for the empty tomb or the Jewish attempt to explain it. The Jews knew the disciples were claiming that the resurrection was a historical event, not a mere product of faith. Last theory is the pagan myth theory. I've, I've heard this one before. Um, typically people like to throw it out like a grenade just in your conversations 
with them sometimes. This theory asserts that the New Testament's not historical because New Testament writers are just copying um, these, these old pagan resurrection myths. Okay, skeptics are quick to cite the supposed resurrection of mythical characters like Marduk and Adonis and Osiris. So is the New Testament just another myth? Did we, like the early church, just concoct this to make them feel better about their suffering and to give them hope when they die? You know, the New Testament is anything but mythological as a literary form. The New Testament is loaded with eyewitnesses and real historical figures, real historical places, and it's corroborated by outside sources that aren't Christian. C.S. Lewis, a writer of myths himself, has commented that the New Testament stories do not show any signs of being mythological. He said, all I am in private life is a literary critic and historian. That's my job. And I'm prepared to say on that basis, if anyone thinks the Gospels are either legends or novels, then that person simply showing his incompetence as a literary critic. I've read a great many novels, and I know a fair amount about the legends that grew up among early people. And I know perfectly well the Gospels are not that kind of stuff. This theory can't explain the empty tomb, can't explain the martyrdom of the eyewitnesses, and it can't explain the testimony of the non-Christian writings. Ancient non-Christian sources knew that the New Testament writers were not offering mythical accounts, but rather historical realities. Okay, no Greek or Roman myth spoke of this literal incarnation of a monotheistic God that came down in human form by a virgin, followed by his death for people's wrongs, and then this physical resurrection. There's nothing out there that's like that. Christianity is unique. Like, this story's crazy. What we believe is crazy. Like, who would make this up? The first real parallel of a dying and rising God does not appear until 150 years after the church. The only known account of a God surviving death in pagan history is, is this Egyptian cult god Osiris. Okay, they believe that Osiris was cut into 14 pieces, which what kind of God gets cut up like that anyways, scattered around Egypt, then they reassembled his body parts, and, and he came back to life by the goddess Isis. She put this tower within him, and he came back to life. However, Osiris does not actually come back to physical life. He just becomes this member of this shadowy underworld and rules it there. It's not even near the same thing as the resurrection of Jesus, and that's the closest thing that we have in history of just Egyptian mythology. Even if there were similar myths that predate the resurrection, doesn't mean that New Testament writers even copied those myths. See, the Christian needs to put the burden of proof on the skeptic when you get into these conversations. It's one thing to concoct an alternative theory to the resurrection. It's another thing to show actual proof for it. Okay, people can say whatever they want, but we need to ask them, why do you believe that? Show me the evidence. Show me the proof. No one from the ancient world, not even the enemies of Christianity, have offered a plausible alternative explanation for the resurrection. There is no consensus. They keep coming up with new theories, keep rehashing old ones, because they don't want to believe in the truth that Jesus is actually alive. And most of these recent theories that you could hear about, we could talk about all sorts of them, but they stem from this anti-supernatural bias that came out of the Enlightenment. They don't believe in miracles. But those who present these alternative theories need to ask, what evidence do you have for that? Like, how do you explain the empty tomb and the eyewitnesses then? Now, we have positive evidence for these things. And as Christians, we can't end here, though. And we just did a lot of thinking, a lot of examining, a lot of learning. But, but we can't end here with just having it in our head. Like, like truth needs to, to seep itself, seep its way into our heart and, and come out 
in action. We need to ask the question, okay, Jesus rose from the dead, so what? So what? Why should I care? Okay, we shouldn't just end with just belief. We, we could study apologetics, we could study doctrine all day, but if our hearts are cold and our lives aren't transformed by the gospel, then all of this is meaningless. Charles Spurgeon, great prince of preachers, said, let us never think we have learned a doctrine until we have seen its fruit in our lives. We don't study for study's sake. We study to know Christ and then to be like him. 1 Corinthians 15, the very last verse, verse 58, Paul ends this whole section on the resurrection. We'll look at this text later and break it up even further. But he ends with a call to action based on just this deep, thoughtful examination of the resurrection. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Previously, Paul argued that Christ's resurrection ensures our resurrection. And this means that there's more to life than this one. There's more to life than this one. And the things we do now have influence on the eternal life we live and others live. So the work that we do now is important. And what is that work? What is the work we're called to do? The mission of God. The mission of God. To take this message and the truth of the resurrection and to talk about it to other people. To open our mouths. If, if anything, if you got anything today, it's not that you would be able to rehash all of these things. My main goal for you, Christian, is that you would be more confident in the resurrection and that you would have courage to open your mouth and share the gospel with people. That's my goal of this whole series, to give you courage to go out and to obey God's command to preach, to share the message of Jesus. There's other implications, though, of the resurrection to our lives. Paul encourages us in light of the resurrection that we need to focus on our future heavenly reward as our goal. In verse 19 of chapter 15, he says, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. He says later in Colossians, so if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, is, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The resurrection also leads us to stop yielding to sin in our lives. Paul said in Romans 6 that we should consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any part of it to sin. This is good news, friend. Because of the resurrection, you have the power to overcome whatever sin you may be struggling with. Why? Because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now in you. Think about that. The same power the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now in you if you have faith in the resurrection. He's in you, and what's his job is to make you holy. You have that. Man, that sin you're struggling with right now, because of the resurrection, you can defeat it. You don't have to struggle with that sin anymore. That is such good news. Philippians 3.10 
Paul gives us just our aim in life. He says it's to know him and the power of his resurrection. That's the Christian's goal in life. And that's what we're doing here. We want to know God and the power of his resurrection. So we're going to spend our efforts on thinking about and talking about is the resurrection, to know him. You can't know God apart from the resurrection of Christ. It's impossible. And that's why we have to be bold to share about the resurrection of Christ because other people can't know God apart from believing in the resurrection of Christ. But if you're not a Christian in here, you've never publicly made your faith known, what reasons do you have for not believing in the resurrection? Why don't you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that he claims to be who he says he is? Maybe it's just that you don't want to believe because you know that it's demanding your life be changed. But no matter what your desires or thoughts are, you must make a choice. Now, the evidence was laid in front of you and it demands a verdict. That verdict is that you are commanded to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. He said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I urge you to do that. I leave you with one final question as we part today. Do you have faith? Do you have faith in the resurrection? If you do, make it known. Christian, this is true. Jesus rose from the dead. Do you believe that? If you do, share it with people. Share it with people. I want to challenge you. Share it with someone this week. That's your command, not from me, but from Jesus. To go, to be bold, to be willing to be looked at as weird and silly, as radical, as fundamentalist, whatever. Go out and make it known. Maybe God's stirring in your heart for the first time and you've never made your faith known. Do you believe now? If so, make it known as well. I believe Pastor Rick or someone will be standing in the back. Go speak to them. Make your faith known. And Jesus is so good. He's so good. And we can trust that his word is true. Jesus is alive. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, God, thank you for your scripture. Thank you for coming to the Apostle Paul and blinding him and knocking him to his knees in dependence on you and for revealing yourself to him, for showing up in his life and changing his heart. God, thank you for that. And thank you for calling him to be an apostle and for speaking through him to write these words. God, what a treasure chest this is about your resurrection. Thank you for this gift. Jesus, we as your church confess this truth. You are alive. Jesus is alive. It's what our whole lives are about. God, everything that we believe stems from this reality. You have defeated death. That gives us so much hope. God, thank you that, that now as we approach the end of our life or as we experience suffering, we can look to the resurrection of Christ and know that it doesn't end here. God, thank you for this truth. God, I pray for your church, for Stephen Street Baptist Church that is here this morning standing 
sitting before me today, God, would you give them courage? Would you give them confident assurance in the resurrection that this is true, that you actually died for our sins and rose from the dead? And would you give them the courage and the boldness to go out and to share that message with Cookville, with the ends of the world? God, encourage us, give us courage, give us boldness to be seen as silly, to be seen and to be misunderstood. God, it's so worth it. This life that you've given us is so, so short. It's gone in the blink of an eye. Would we not waste this time that you've given us? Would we be ambassadors of the risen Christ, our King? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.